Welcome to Parenting in the Trenches. I'm Karen Peters, a registered clinical counselor, and I'm a mom. We're getting real about all things family from a mental health perspective. So let's get to it. All right. So today I have with me Lydia Fay. Lydia is an adult transracial adoptee and the creator of Adoptee to Adoption Worker on Instagram. She started her career working with youth in foster care quickly after earning her BA in social work. Lydia seeks to cultivate really safe spaces for transracial adoptees to share their feelings and experiences, but at the same time empowering them to discover and embrace their racial identity. Lydia created her platform to share her personal insight and experience of being transracially adopted in the hopes of educating white adoptive parents and bridging the racial and emotional gaps between transracial adoptees and their white adoptive parents. Yes. Lydia is a lover of all things makeup. I feel like we should do an episode on some of these things. Okay. So makeup enjoys, right? Joys listening to music, talking about the Enneagram, like Dude, okay, so I know like nothing about that, and I get asked all the time. So I'm a seven. I'm like, I don't even know what that. Means. Like, I've taken it, means. but I don't know what that means. <laughs> like, I don't have the time to absorb all that. Yes, yes. Oh my goodness. Okay, so next episode, Enneagram. Um, traveling, spending time with friends and family, and as a self-proclaimed master chef. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you ever gonna like apply for the show and? I don't know, but I love cooking. I it's actually funny because cool. you know, growing up a transracial adoptee, you know, yeah. my parents had different like tastes and like spices that they like to use in food than what mm-hmm. I did. And so I started cooking from a really young age and have just always loved it. So who knows? Awesome. So you're adventurous. Like yeah. you try a lot. Yeah. It's so mm-hmm. good. Yeah. So Lydia Faye's coming out with a cookbook, right? Yeah. Next year? I actually, I want to. I really do. Amazing. So that might be a thing. Okay. Well, I'll be watching <laughs> for it. Okay. So tell us a little bit about your personal experience yeah. as a transracial adoptee. There's no way we're going to cover everything that you're going to have a value to share, but could you right. touch on some pieces that you want to kind of highlight from your own lived experience that informs the work that you do now and what you want to get out to parents? Yeah, of course. So I was adopted as an infant, domestic, private adoption. Um, I was born in Detroit, Michigan, and my family lived about an hour away. So I grew up in a really small, white, conservative town. And growing up, I always knew I was adopted it was very apparent. My parents are white. I'm not. They even talk about how kind of the first like sentences I was saying was pointing out the differences of my brown skin and their white skin. So there was never a secret there. But, you know, it was difficult growing up, um, being one of the only people of color in my neighborhood, in my school, at church. We were the sole diversity in a lot of those spaces. And Honestly, I didn't understand how my adoption impacted me until college. And that was the first time I went to therapy and the first time I heard adoption was trauma. And Mm -hmm. I was kind of taken aback because I was adopted as an infant. I don't remember any of this. My family has always been my family. How can I, 18 years later, be experiencing trauma from something I don't remember? Yeah. 
Right. So I did a lot of, you know, internal work and just figuring out and processing what it was like growing up in this space and being removed in college. You know, I went to college about two and a half hours away, allowed me to process that more and have a space for that. Then I also met with some, I started mentoring some other transracial adoptees and saw a lot of similarities in our stories of not feeling developed in our racial identity, not being able to have conversations with our families about our adoption or about race, as well as just feeling lonely a lot of the time. And so mentoring these other adoptees, I realized that there was probably a lot of other adoptees that were experiencing these same things, which is kind of why I created my platform. I wanted to, one, connect with adult adoptees so that I didn't feel alone. And because a lot of times you feel crazy, right? Because everyone's like, but you had this great life. Like what's, what's going on? Why, why are you sad? Why do you feel these things? So that was part of the reason I created my account, but I also wanted to have white adoptive parents be able to hear from us adoptees and hear what we're saying so that they can change, make those adjustments, right? So I'm having conversations now with my family and my mom's like, there's so much more we could have done, but I don't want adoptive parents to be having those conversations in 20 years. I want them to be doing that work now. So that's kind of how I came to my platform. Um, I've known I've wanted to be a social worker since I was in eighth grade. So um, I do work full time as a permanency caseworker right now um, and doing adoptions and things like that as well. Amazing. You know, as you talk about that, I think from, from my white adoptive parent lens, Mm -hmm. um, the, the, dual experience you have when you hear new information that gives you the light bulb Mm -hmm. and knowing like, dang, if I had known that 10 years ago, right? like we, and so grateful I learned it. So I'm, I'm so, I'm always so grateful to have these conversations and have all these, I, I come expecting a bunch of light bulbs to go on every single time. And they always do, but it comes with this pang of like, Oh, mm-hmm. if I had known this for my girls last year, 10 years ago, five years ago, like it just, it always comes with that. So I appreciate you kind of saying like the, the intention of doing this work is to equip us earlier, sooner, Absolutely. Um, which is partly why we're excited to have opportunities to give airtime to adoptive voices to share this firsthand mm-hmm. yeah because it, it's confusing for us to not know what you don't know right so we absolutely how am I going to teach my kids right and it's yeah. more readily available now right like yeah. 24 years ago when I was a child my parents oh. there wasn't Instagram there wasn't Facebook groups where they could you know lean into these conversations with people who weren't just in their you know immediate community. So I always encourage adoptive parents now to really lean into these conversations, follow all different types of adoptees, especially the ones that, you know, mirror your child, but we all have different stories and different insights. So it's important to be listening to all voices. When you talked about that kind of, I'm going to, I'm going to say a word and you can discredit, whatever. I don't know if this is a good reflection of what you were saying, but it felt Mm -hmm. to me almost like whiplash in college. Mm. Like somebody gave you a whole other pair of glasses 
to reflect backwards with. Like yeah. I didn't know until now. So when you re, I just can't imagine the impact and the intensity of this moment where you had to grapple with adoption is trauma and right. how that colored, it changes the color of all the experiences you had when you look yeah. through that lens. Yes. Yeah. I mean, a lot of adoptees refer to it as coming out of the fog, right? So we've lived in this bubble um, of thinking that everything is perfect and beautiful. And that's, even for me, that wasn't something that my parents were talking about. It was more other people in our community, right? They were affirming that I should be thankful and grateful for what my parents had done. It wasn't my parents doing those things. But when you hear that mm-hmm. in school and, you know, people in our church, we were super involved in church, it starts to weigh on you and you think, okay, this is the truth. Yeah. And then as a transracial adoptee, I had the added complexities of navigating the racism that I had experienced growing up. And a lot of times, the people closest to me were the biggest perpetuators of this. And so again, being able to remove myself from that community, from that space allowed me to all as hard as it was and as heartbreaking as it was to even realize that the things that friends or families were saying were super damaging and racist. Um, it was good. It's, it's a continual healing journey that I'm still on because it's a lot to unpack 18 years of growing up in this community. And, you know, I'm only 24. So it's still, you know, it's still relatively new to unpack these things. How is it doing the work then not on a personal level, but I know there's an intersection there and you can't tease them completely apart, but when you're kind of have your professional supportive hat on doing social work and, and how do you care for yourself when it's still fresh for you. Yeah. I, I feel like since I've known for a long time, I've wanted to do this work, I've been able to process it, but I can also see the differences and separate my story because I'm working with, I'm not doing private adoption. I'm doing, Hmm. um, working with children in the foster care system. So I can kind of separate my story from theirs, knowing that I didn't experience whatever they did to come into care. My experience was different. But I will say being an adoptee does impact the way I do work and making sure that the adoptee is centered um, on the teams I'm working on, you know, in the permanency teams, making sure their voice is heard. And also, you know, I write what, what are called child profiles, right? So this is something that the children can request from the county when they turn 18. I received one when I was 18. I requested one. And there was very minimal information. You could just tell there wasn't there wasn't anything there. It just left more questions. So when I'm writing those types of things, you know, I'm making sure I'm interviewing birth parents and um, just trying to make sure that hopefully in 18 years, or whenever, when the child is able to read this, there are some questions answered for them. And hopefully, whether they're reunified, which hopefully, I'm thankful that a lot of the kids I've worked with have been reunified. But if that isn't the case, and adoption does become their permanency goal, I'm hoping that families are already having conversations with them. And there's, you know, hopefully it's an open adoption where this is just added information. But you never know, we don't know all the circumstances. So 
things like that. You know, I have that social work degree that allows me to do the work that I'm doing, but I have an added level of competency when it comes to being an adoptee. Yeah, you sure do. And it's one that's undervalued. It bothers me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're coming, I guess we're getting there, but it's, yeah. 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 It's so important. If, if we talk about the loss aspect, mm-hmm. again, I go back to that blind spot that we have when we have not been through that type of loss, we can't right. readily name what's being lost for our kids. Right. And, and I'm, I'm always curious to know what, what do we need to understand? What do we need to see through and past for our kids? Our kids are also, we want to name that when they're right, like as young as possible. Absolutely. And that also means they don't yet have the language to put to that. They'll have this inner conflict and not be able to name it. Of course, we don't expect that. Right. But right. we also, as white adoptive parents, cannot crawl into that lived experience and right. fully understand it. So can you share a bit of, make it a bit tangible for us? What Absolutely. What is lost in the process of adoption? Well, there's, adoption? there's so much that is lost. And what I wanted to start with is, like you were saying, children don't have the language and what do we look out for? Yeah. We know that adoption is lost from the moment it happens, right? And so a lot of times families are asking me, well, when do we start therapy or, you know, what does that look like? And my answer is always right away. Yeah. Obviously, if it's an infant, not right away, but right when you don't need to look for acting out behaviors. We already know that they've experienced that loss. And Mm -hmm. so when they are four or five or whenever you can find a therapist that can even start play therapy at that young Mm -hmm. age to allow them to process that is important. And a lot of adoptees, myself included, there was never acting out. What my fear of abandonment looks like was being a perfectionist. It was not wanting to do anything wrong out of that fear. And that's, that's how I man, or, you know, that's how I held on to that grief and loss is not wanting my now adoptive family to leave me. So I always emphasize that to adoptive parents that maybe your child won't act out. Maybe there won't be that moment. Mm -hmm. But if there is that moment, they've already been suffering and it should have already happened. So that's an emotional thing um, that I say is lost. Obviously with transracial adoption, not only is it that loss of family connection, but also a lot of times in transracial adoption, it disrupts our connection to our community and people of our Mm -hmm. race. In my case, you know, I stayed in Michigan, but I was still removed even just an hour from people that looks like me. And so I always tell families that the when you're open to transracially adopting or when a child of a different race is placed in your home, there's adjustments you have to make. You become a multiracial, multicultural family. And mm-hmm. so your house should reflect that. It should be reflected in the art we see on the wall, the music you're listening to, the shows that you're watching. It should also be seen in the activities and things that you do, right? So if you are involved in church or extracurriculars and they're all white, there's an alternative out there where they can see people that look like them. Those are adjustments that have to be made. Mm -hmm. And so 
you know, a lot of times people are like, well, I live in an area where there's not a lot of diversity. I understand that, but we do, we make a lot of adjustments for our, for children, right? So your child, um, if you lived in an area that didn't have a good school district, you'd probably send them to a different school, even if it was 30 minutes away. If your child had to see a specialist for some medical condition, you would drive however far it was to make sure they saw whoever they needed to see. Our racial identity needs to be prioritized in that Mm -hmm. same manner, right? So my parents enrolled me in a dance studio that was 30 minutes away so that I could see other children that looked like me. Was that easy? Was that, you know, the most efficient thing that they could do with their time? Probably not. They had three other kids to raise as well. But it allowed me to see other children that looked like me. And that was something that they were willing to prioritize, even though we probably passed five, six other dance studios on the way that I could have gone to, right? So those are things that families have to be able to adjust and shift their lifestyle to. What was it? What, what were you, were you aware of that at the age that you went to dance class? That my parents intentionally did that? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I try and think about that. Yeah. And I don't know if I knew they intentionally did that. I think as I grew up, I definitely realized that because I mean, it was a long drive. And even for a kid, you know, after school, you have to take that 30 minute drive. And, um, but I'm so happy that they did that. Yeah. But it was also hard again, because I had that contrast of dance was the only place I saw other people who looked like me. But then I went back home, my neighbors right. didn't, my classmates didn't. So it allowed me to see that, which unfortunately, a lot of adoptees don't even have that. They don't have any connection. Um, to anyone that looks like them. So I'm very happy that I had that, but it was still difficult. I won't say that that, you know, solved everything, but I think as I got older, I definitely knew that they did that on purpose. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It, it helps, it helps be, um, when you framed it as prioritizing Mm -hmm. because it really, it really highlights the measuring sticks that we put against our values. So what we value, um, we might even be blind to. We can say, oh, I really value, I totally value cultural um, mm-hmm. background and knowledge and immersion. And But we don't necessarily understand how that's translating into practice um, right. because we feel satisfied by how we're immersed in it. So we use our own experience to say it's enough without climbing into the experience of someone whose day-to-day life, their classroom, their lessons that they go to, their community center, their whatever, is not a majority mirror to who they are. Right. That Yeah. So just to remember the, the value changes when you don't get it kind of trickled throughout your entire life, the value right. needs to be. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's where those efforts matter more. Yes. Yeah. And I always tell families, you know, if you would be willing to put your child on a travel soccer team or travel basketball team, or even if you're going to those away games that are 30, 40 minutes Or, you know, on weekends, you go to concerts that may be an hour away from your town, right? You're doing those things for leisure. And 
because it's because you enjoy doing those things. So the necessities, the things that are crucial to your child's development are non-negotiable, right? Those shouldn't, it doesn't matter if they're far away. And ideally, families would be living in communities where their child is mirrored everywhere. I know that's not realistic for all families to move, you know, to more diverse areas. So if that isn't the case, you have to be willing to make those adjustments. Yeah. Yeah. The birth family separation piece. Can you talk about that loss? So when we talk about a, a adoption is trauma, so much of that is embedded in relationship loss, in yeah. rupture, in relationship. Yeah. And so I, I get, you know, the piece that you're talking about has a unique thread to the the ongoing loss that you will experience as a transracial adoptee in places that don't reflect who you are. Right. And there needs to be so much more intentionality just as a product of that. Absolutely. What about the loss that comes with not knowing, right? not knowing prior, like yeah. Well, and I think that's another thing that's important for adoptive parents to be thinking about even before they adopt. What is that going to look like? Mm-hmm. There's too many adoptees that we grow up in situations where we have no connection to our birth family. And in a lot of cases, that's probably due to adoptive parents' insecurities of what that yeah. connection would look like for us. And it's important to remember, yes, you're adopting this child. Yes, this child is a part of your family as if they were your birth child. But we still have that birth family, our DNA, that we deserve to have a connection with. Now, if for some reason there's not, you know, you're not able to have those connections, be asking those questions to caseworkers, you know, before adoption. See what you can know so that when your child is asking questions, you can have some answers, but that's an immense loss. And it's, it's important for families to realize that having an adoptive family is not a bandaid. It's not going to replace, right. Um, our birth, our birth family. So just being able to understand that there's going to be that grief and loss. A lot of times, you know, I'd hear people say, but you're chosen but I was unchosen, right? That's how it feels. I was unchosen to then be chosen. And that's hard, right? I I think I think about it more now than I did growing up. I think about all the milestones that I've accomplished, whether it's high school, graduation, college, now I'm in grad school and thinking about, I wonder... I wonder what my birth mom is doing. Or even on holidays, I will say, honestly... Probably until I was 16, most Christmases and every birthday, I cried myself to sleep because I just wanted to know, right? What are, what are they doing? Is she thinking about me? What, what is her life like? Right. Yeah. And of course I wasn't going to share that with my family. Right. Because as adoptees, adoptees are very intuitive. We can feel these things, right? My parents never made me feel like I had to hide these feelings, but again, you just you just know you don't want to make your parents feel bad or like you're not grateful. So we're hiding these feelings to maintain, you know, just kind of the happiness status quo of our family. So there was lots of nights of crying myself to sleep 
because of the grief and loss that I felt from, you know, not having any sort of connection, knowing basically nothing about my birth family. That is such a good reminder for parents around the myth that if you raise an issue that you might have a gut feeling about is happening for your child, that you're perpetuating something, you're making it worse for them. I would just want to dispel that myth because, you know, I'm, I'm imagining the girl crying herself to sleep at night mm-hmm. with this added layer of, I can't share this honestly and openly um, because now I'm also having to protect the relationship that I have mm-hmm. with my adoptive family. Mm-hmm. I want people to assume that's the case so that mm-hmm. they can have the responsibility of helping their child name that and open up the door, right? You can't mm-hmm. give that responsibility to a child, right? Right, And so it comes with the territory, I think, of developing and growing and attuning to your environment, being having a sense that I have to be very careful, mm-hmm. right? But right. that then shouldn't be the burden on the child. So if we know that that is the case, it gives us the responsibility to say, do you ever wonder, have you ever thought, or how are holidays for you mm-hmm. to, to raise those things, right? Right. Well, and sometimes even some kids, even if you ask them those questions, they would still feel uncomfortable. Right. Right. So it's about cultivating a brave and safe space for your child to feel open. You can't just ask these questions if you haven't laid the foundation that they can come to you about anything. Right. I tell families in the same way that hopefully you're telling your child anything about sex, right? Whether yes. it's about the reproductive yeah. system, about anything, they can come to you. But that starts with having conversations about our bodies, right? Just yeah. having the autonomy, right? There's so much groundwork we have to lay for children to feel comfortable having these conversations. Mm-hmm. They need to feel like you're safe, like you're comfortable, right? Again, adoptees are often intuitive. Yeah. So I always felt like if something was uncomfortable to my parents, I would just let it go. Right. So yes, families, it's about Mm -hmm. cultivating those brave spaces so that they can have those conversations, but continuing to hold that space, right? Even if you ask them, how are holidays? They may say, they're fine. I don't think about my family. Yeah. But you know, maybe in three years, their answer may be different. So you can't just assume Mm -hmm. that, that asking them one time mm-hmm. will hold true for the rest of their life. That's not how yes. it works. Right. My answer it's, at seven would have been very different than at yeah. 17. Right. Makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, there were so many things I grew up knowing were taboo. Right. And, and that right. would never have, you know, I get, I can, I think we can all get that if we put ourselves in the shoes of our child self and recognizing mm-hmm. what our family felt gave indicators. It's kind of like we all, all have our spidey senses yes. and we all kind of, it, it takes very little to kind of get the vibe in the room. Like nice. I could read this room and I saw your eyes widening out of fear when I said, mm-hmm. what is whatever? Like I, I right. Mm-hmm. And that, and that is all it takes for a kid to go, Ooh, dangerous territory, not testing that one again. 
Of course. Yeah. yeah. Or yeah. even in other conversations, seeing how you react. Are you super yeah. do you get angry? Are you like, no, we don't yeah, talk defensive? Right. Like yeah. no child wants to make their parents feel that way or have mm-hmm. them respond that way. So we will do anything to avoid that. Yeah. Okay, let's shift to microaggressions. You're going to be like our mentor and instructor here. Yeah. I <laughs> it's it there's no there you're never going to come up with a complete cheat sheet here, but mm-hmm. could you name some of the microaggressions that we need to be able to identify when we're walking down the street, when we're going to a parent teacher meeting, when we're right. watching kids play on a playground, when what do we need to be aware of and know what's actually happening behind what might look innocent or yeah. There's a lot of things. I'll be honest. I think just from any adoptee standpoint, not even transracial, it's people saying things like your child's so lucky. Wow. You did an amazing thing. You know, I had cousins that even until like two years ago would point out like, oh, these are my real cousins. You're my adopted cousin, right? So those types of things are happening and just being mindful of those um, and how to respond to those. Parents need to be, you know, running interceptions on those types of things and making sure that people aren't saying that and addressing it. I think a lot of times I see families and I have conversations with adoptive parents who are like, but it's our friends or whoever. And we know they didn't mean it like that. Yeah. Excusing it for, yeah, good intention. Good or intentions. They have our kids back. Yeah. Right. But your child is internalizing that. And so it's so important that it's addressed. And I even tell parents in front of the child right then and there, that's not appropriate. We don't say that. Right. Things like that. So your child knows, okay, my parents sticking up for me because a lot of adoptees, or I'll just speak for myself. I feel like we don't share a lot of those things because we don't know how our parents will react. If we brought up those things, right? So again, kind of cultivating those safe spaces and setting a precedent that we don't talk about it like that. That's Mm -hmm. not the case. We don't, I'm not held on a pedestal. This is not, you know, we're not perpetuating saviorism and things like that are really important for any um, adoptive parents. Now, when it comes to transracial adoption, Again, there's a lot more complexities. Having people touch your child's hair always needs to be stopped. Yeah, um, That's a form of a microaggression. As well as a lot of times people will say things like, oh, they're so well-spoken. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I realized a lot that I was viewed as the exception to my race. So people would say things not about me, uh-huh. but about Black people in general. Right. And, you know, at 13, I was like, okay, maybe that's a compliment. Like, okay, yeah, like, I'm well-educated. I'm not sassy, whatever it is. But it was only because of my proximity to whiteness that they would say this in the first place, and they felt comfortable saying that. Hmm. And so when people are saying that, whether your child is present or not, again, it needs to be addressed and shut down. Because again, those are things that I internalize. Oh, she talks so proper. She's so well spoken. Um, 
you know, I even had a friend's mom be like, oh, like, you know, you're not like those other black girls. You're not sassy. You're not basically talking about, you know, black girls being hypersexualized and all these things. And I was just like, one that's hurtful coming from anyone, but especially someone who knows me well, um, to say those things and think that I would take that as a compliment. So things like that, while again, you may think that these people have good intentions, it's super harmful to your child and needs to be addressed. And isn't it just by nature of it being people who are close to you, it's that much more confusing for the child. Exactly. Exactly. And it I makes think, it that much more important that we separate that. Right. right? To I, be able, I, yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of times that's what was so confusing to me. Cause I'm like, this is someone from church. This is someone that my family yeah. has known 20 years before I was born or even friends at school. Right. Like, the people I was closest to at school were probably the ones saying the most racist things to my face. Not saying other kids weren't saying the N word or whatever, but a lot of times people were testing the waters and, you know, towing the line as to what they could say. And I think it's really important that adoptive parents know that these things are unfortunately inevitable so you're not taken aback when they're happening, right? So instead of being like, oh my gosh, I never expected that. No, we know that people, even with the best intentions, say ignorant things. And in that moment, it's important to protect your child and not prioritize white comfort over their needs and their emotions. So yeah, again, it's important that families yeah. are aware of that and able to address those things. Even when it's the, you know, again, the people closest to us, it may be family members. They may be your child's grandma, your, you know, mother-in-law, and you're going to be able, you're going to have to have those conversations as to in those situations, what would we do? And I've talked to a lot of adoptive parents who in some cases have had to separate themselves from their extended family, you know, Mm -hmm. and maybe can't go to family gatherings because of the insensitive things their family members are saying even after they've addressed it right so addressing it is one thing you have to set the boundary you have to reinforce it and make adjustments if people are not respecting that when we try and um advocate for when we try and help our kids advocate for themselves Mm -hmm. so naming okay this is what's happening there because that's an education process as well. Absolutely. You're, you're not able, you don't know it either. If you're raised in a white environment until somebody is able to say, I'm going to say what that name means or what that word is indicating or what that movement is that they're, why they're touching your hair and not the white kid's hair next to you and why, right. And how, I think a lot of parents get scared about not knowing how to best equip their kids to A, understand, give language to understand what's happening and B, what are we ask? what do we ideally want them to be able to do? They're not always under our white cover. What, when, when they go independently on a field trip somewhere, we want them to feel like they can name and then advocate for themselves and set a boundary. How do we give our kids the language and how does that kind of progression work? I mean, obviously when they're really little, we're doing all the intervening and I get that in part they're learning from watching us 
as models of when we step in and why, but is there anything else we can be doing? Phrases people can pass along to their kids, things, you know, concrete kind of examples of what it would look like to say, you know, if this ever comes up, this, these are things you can say. Yeah. I mean, I think that's important just in the same way you would tell your kids about, you know, how they should respond if there was a bully. Right. So maybe saying, please don't touch my hair. You know, you want your child to have autonomy of their body. If that's not helping, you go to a teacher. Also giving them examples of what something looks like, right? There's a clear distinction between maybe someone at school not liking me, maybe because our personalities don't get along. I was kind of a loud kid. So maybe they just don't like me because they're quiet, right? And a child not liking me because I'm Black. And so also having children be able to distinguish that of, Are they saying things like, you're too loud? Are they saying things like, your skin's the color of poop, right? Like, we have to be able to talk about those things and say, like, this is racist um, so that your kid can know that. Um, I think it's just, it's hard. And it stems from parents being able to have hard conversations and know what that looks like, right? So doing their own anti-racist work Um, anti-black work that way they can learn what to say because I understand that a lot of times adoptive parents are like I don't want to have these conversations or I don't know how right because this isn't my experience yeah but you're raising someone that this is their experience and so you have to figure out how to do this work but I also think it's important and this is why I emphasize children having racial mirrors, right? Having, Mm -hmm. and not just people in their life that look like them, but having close, you know, connections, like an aunt or uncle type person in their life that they can talk to about these things. And I think, you know, we hear it takes a village and your village should look, there should be people in your village that look like your child, right? And not in the sense that you're just seeking out people just to be that. It's not, you know, the job of, you know, a black woman to then raise your child when you chose to, you know, transracially that, but, you know, having someone that has that lived experience, I think they can have a lot of those conversations as well with your child. So, you know, I'm always encouraging families to find communities where there are people that look like their child, because I, I think that would have been helpful to me because, I didn't have those conversations with my parents. I didn't have that vocabulary. But even as I got older and learned for myself, I still didn't know how to have those conversations with them. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what that would look like. And I just wish that mm-hmm. I then had, you know, someone, an people aunt. who understood friend, from the right, inside out. who understood because yeah. that was my thing. Like, okay, I can tell my parents, but what are they going to say? Like, oh my gosh, that's so horrible. I wanted someone who could say, I know what that feels like. This is how you yeah. can feel it in the future. Mm-hmm. And so there That's was always going to be that gap and disconnect for me and my adoptive parents. Of course. Yeah. And again, there's ability for us to model that we're open to that. Mm-hmm. We did a series on um, sexual health education as well and, and yeah. setting up really sex positive talks for kids and how do we start mm-hmm. that from the beginning and what does it look like to be really open and honest and transparent and not need to know everything, but still give this a um, clear impression to our kids and message to our kids that 
whatever you ask, there's no shame there. You, you can come to us with anything. And I think, you know, it gives us permission and encourages us to remember that we don't have to be the only person that influences their sexual identity, their health, their wellness, that, you know, we want to help our kids understand who their village is. So, you know, if if I'm going to model that, I get to say, yeah, who, like, would auntie so-and-so be a good person? Like, if you ever had questions and that it wasn't okay to come to me, it's okay. That's normal. And let's just go through your list of people on your inner circle, who feels mm-hmm. safe, who are your people, you know, and, and to name that it helps kids kind of walk around on this planet with a sense of like, who's on that inner circle and who's right. the safe, safe right. center. And it helps us to reflect who have we nurtured to be in that center? Mm-hmm. Who have we included? Right. Yeah. Yeah. If you wanted white adoptive parents to research, do the work, find the places to learn, really like learn well. There's so much crap mm-hmm. out there. I just mm-hmm. <laughs> want to say that too, right? Yeah. What are where where do you point? What do you point to to help people understand this? Well, as far as transracial adoption, I would say, again, looking for adult transracial adoptees that are advocating. There are hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of adoptees that are speaking out. And again, we all have different stories. Um, And so it's important to be listening to us. You know, there's people speaking on Instagram and Facebook and doing webinars and things like that. So that's always important. As far as just having a greater understanding of racism and the ways that we face it, um, you know, people of color face that on a daily basis and what microaggressions look like. There's lots of books, you know, I have a lot of families. Um, there's a book by Austin Channing Brown. It's called I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. I believe that's the okay. title. Um, and so that's a good book too, because even though she's not a transracial adoptee, she grew up in a white community And so I think it allows people, she's very direct, she's very clear about speaking about what that looks like for her. And so I encourage families to read books like that, that allow them to have a greater understanding for what their child will inevitably face as they grow up, especially being in a space mostly probably surrounded by white people. Yeah. I I want to quickly ask you before we end our call, I, I wanted to know, because um, we have listeners all over the world, yeah. uh, some resources that people offer mm-hmm. are only local. So for whatever reason, that just is only a- applicable to a, a local audience. So for the platform that you host mm-hmm. um, around helping adoptees connect with one another um, beyond Instagram, but just being able to kind of use your method to connect, yeah. um, who's that open to? Yeah. So the my platform is intended for adoptees of any age to be able to have those conversations and again, not feel like we're alone. But I always encourage adoptive parents to come in and listen, right? This isn't necessary. You know, 
speaking or defending or whatever that may look like. This is just a space for you to listen and absorb the um, experiences and the thoughts of adoptees. So I encourage families to do that. There's lots of adoptees who offer services. You know, I do mentoring for um, children and adult adoptees. I also do mentoring and coaching for parents. Um, to work with your adoptee and kind of, again, bridge those emotional and racial gaps and find tangible ways for you as a family to make those adjustments to being a multiracial, multicultural family. Awesome. I'm going to put your um, Becoming Lydia Faye website in the uh, show notes as well. Some of the books that you've raised as resources and um yeah. I, thank you so much for your time today, for your wisdom, your expertise, and just uh, your openness to being able to share some hard stuff um, yeah. that is going to be actually really transformative for other people who are in this position. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for spending time with me today. Remember to check out the show notes for related resources. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram, or you can also subscribe to my online learning page at my.thrive-life forward slash LRL series, where you'll get updates, extra tools for your toolkit. And if there's a topic that you want me to cover in this podcast, please shoot me a message. I would love to hear from you. Shoulder to shoulder with you, knee deep in this mud. I will see you back here next time.